This is Michael, host of the political podcast, Cuckoo for Politics. I am so passionate about politics, hence the name Cuckoo for Politics, and I hope you are too. Thanks for joining. This is a podcast discussion on political perspectives on various issues that matter with citizens of the world. So I do ask that you grab your favorite libations, whether it be coffee, tea, water, juice, beer, wine, or a spirit or two, and let's get ready for some lively conversation and let's learn something together. Gridlock is defined when one party controls the executive branch and the other political party controls either both houses of Congress or one. It is said that the framers of the Constitution designed our political system in such a way to prevent any given branch of government in consolidating too much power. Basically, it was a set up as a means for the federal government to check and balance itself. This was to motivate lawmakers from different states representing different interests to formulate laws that will benefit society. Now, I can expand on how the laws in American history favored a selected group of people and of a certain economic class, but this episode will explore the roots of today's political gridlock. Presently, the White House has a Democratic president, President Joe Biden. Both houses of Congress are controlled by the Democratic Party, slim majority, but they are in control. The House of Representatives is led by Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and the Senate is in charge by, led by sorry, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who I used to intern for back in the day during my grad years. In any event, how is it that Biden and team have limited successes legislatively, including a number of executive posts that have yet to be filled and or confirmed? It would appear gridlock tends to be the norm in Washington, D.C., the Democrats seem not to have enough political power to move their agenda forward. Compromise with the other party, where both parties will come to an agreement to pass laws, have become a dirty word. In my opinion, the only one that suffers is us, the American people. In part two of Ron and Cut the State of Our Union, my guest is no other than my political partner in crime, Sam Jean, as we continue our series in discussing the political climate in the U.S. Our topic today is gridlock. Now, before we get into the episode, let me refresh your audience with our backgrounds. Sam and I attended and graduated from Eastern Nazarene College in Quincy, Massachusetts, a Christian liberal arts college near the city of Boston. It was there we formulated a friendship as we had similar classes since we were both history majors. Sam not only graduated from ENC with a distinctive honors, MAGA cum laude, but he pursued a Juris Doctorate from Boston University. I myself pursued a master's degree in political science, inducted into the Pi Sigma Alpha Honor Society from St. John's University, located in Queens, New York. Currently, Sam resides in Los Angeles and is a practicing attorney who was a partner at Neil Schwartz Associates, worked for various entertainment companies before establishing his own consulting company. He's his own man. He advises clients in the areas of strategic and crisis communications, along with media relations. He has made several media appearances in the U.S. and in Canada on the subject of U.S. policies and teaches part-time on a grad level on strategic communications. 
We have been passionate about politics since our first days in college, hence why he and I get together from time to time to discuss the various political topics of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Cuckoo for Politics, and let's get ready to learn something together. What's up, good people? Michael here, host of the political podcast, Cuckoo for Politics. I'm with my guest, Ron and Cut, Sam Jean. And as we were talking earlier about the Biden and Harris administration, I want to talk to you about what you said you alluded earlier about the obstruction that's currently or the gridlock that's currently going on in Congress. Now, gridlock is, you could say, Washington norm. That is nothing that we're unaware of. We always know that no matter what administration, regardless regardless of party affiliation, there is always you know, um, some trade-offs. The new administration comes in, it has promises, it has its key policies, it works with the leadership in Congress, they negotiate a compromise, and they move forward. But we've noticed as the time has progressed, gridlock is entrenched. And you said the current Republican, and I call current QAnon Republican Party, is lock in step to say no to everything. They're not even working to come to a compromise, not even looking to put a bill to debate. They don't want to even participate. And it's not only coming from the QAnon Republican wing of the party. It's even coming from the Democratic Party. What do you make of this obstruction that's impeding the Biden and Harris administration going forward? What I make of it is I'm not surprised at all. This is what happens when you have a political system that has only two parties. If one party decides they don't want to play ball and the way the rules have been changed, particularly in the Senate, if one party decides they don't want to play ball, nothing happens. Okay. Now, there is a reality in politics where you have to cut deals, you have to make deals for things to happen. And I think that this is the frustration of a lot of people, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, is that there doesn't seem to be any urgency. That's the word I'm looking for. There doesn't seem to be any urgency in providing relief for the average American. And that's a disappointment. Now, I'll say this, Michael. You know I'm a progressive. We get blamed for things all the time. And it's presented in the media as if we are the ones who are driving the Democratic Party, right? And so when they want to criticize Joe Biden, they say, hey, Joe and Kamala, they're they're leaning to the left wing of the party. But I want to remind you that when all this was being put together, that the progressives are the ones who gave up in, in other words, they gave something up to get something, okay? They played ball with the president. It wasn't them that created the crisis where now we have a bill that stalled. Because even if it passes the House, it'll never pass the Senate. Because you have two Democrats who have decided that they aren't going to play with Democrats. 
they're definitely not playing with Democrats. They're not even representing, I believe, their constituency well. You have uh, Manchin from West Virginia, and my understanding of his opposition to the Build Back Better, um, particularly on environmental issues, is that he is supported, backed by the fossil fuel industry. Not only politically supported, but financially, um, he is indebted to them. Therefore, he can't anything, not even an adjustment to it. Um, and that's that's the sad case. I don't know what cinema's point is because she confuses me all the time. I, I think Manchin, at least he says exactly what he says. But the Arizona senator, I have no idea where she's coming from. And looking at her profile, she was a progressive candidate, a progressive elected official. And then when she got into the Senate, she just com- completely did a 180. Michael, power tends to corrupt. And she's a an example of that, a person who has gotten a lot of power and a lot of attention. And, and that's what she seems to be playing at. I read something this, this week, which suggested that the reason she's behaving in the way that she's behaving is she intends to run for president. And she is trying to beef up her credentials as an independent. I don't, I don't know if I believe that. Uh, what I do know is that she has incredibly powerful and wealthy donors, and she seems to be going that the people who donate to her want her to go. And again, it's it, it's unfortunate, and that's why you need more than two parties. I got to be honest with you, because if if you could have if you had a third party, maybe there would be someone that you could you could talk to. Even even the people who are presented as reasonable Republicans, you can't get them to come to the table. And as it relates to Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin got everything he wanted. Every time he asked for something, they 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 gave it to him. They took it out of the bill. The number was too high. They brought the number down. He keeps moving the goalposts. He's not interested in doing all these deals. And as you indicated... Uh, Joe Manchin is consistent. This is he's a conservative Democrat who is beholden to industry. He's behaving exactly how as he's always behaved. Cinema, on the other hand, you know, you said she was a progressive. It is, it is a weird thing uh, that a person who supported Ralph Nader is is now obstructing a very mild progressive agenda. Yeah, you know, you said power corrupts. I think of, if you're probably familiar with House Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik, she's a Republican from New York, upstate New York. And when she ran for office, she totally, totally went against and criticized the Trump administration. She criticized Trump himself. She got it. She won her her congressional seat. She got into office 
and another one who did a complete 180. She succumbed to Donald Trump. She praises him. She criticized any Republican that does not side with the big lie. And she's now conference chair. I mean, this is a freshman. You know how the leadership goes in the Senate, in the House. You have to be there for years, elected a couple of terms, get seniority, get a reputation, and then you're promoted to these prominent, powerful, influential positions. She went up from a freshman straight to the top. And so this goes to the showing or saying about how power corrupts. And I want to dwell on another thing. In that Build Back Better plan, we're talking about the bill that was for the infrastructure that did pass. But if you recall, there were representatives, Republicans, representatives in the House that supported the bill because it met the criteria and the needs of its their constituents, which was putting, replacing new pipes into their communities. And, and we know the story about in various parts of Michigan where they had lead pipes, but they were criticized by their own party for siding with the Democratic president. But that that's hypocrisy, not a hypocrisy, that's just insane. I just don't get it. You will never get it, Michael. <laughs> I guess so. Because because part of part of getting it is 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 to put yourself in that in that kind of mindset. Uh, these uh, these are true believers, and when a person you're from a religious background, you know you know how faithful true believers can be. Now apply that to a, a, a political situation. I don't expect. Honestly, uh, Republicans Republicans always go against what Democrats say. Always that that's the history of that bipartisan conflict. However, you do make a point, and and I think that what is becoming public Republican orthodoxy is informed by how Trump behaved and how he expects people to behave. And so now you have people who now they are hearing the other side are your enemy, the other side they're communists, the other side they eat children, the other side they're murderers, the other side want to come and tell you how to live your life, they're going to round you up, take your guns. When that message keeps being drilled into your head, every because that constituency listens to talk radio and then they get home and then they have Fox or One American News Network constantly feeding them this, this refrain. Of course, they don't want you to work with the other guy, even if it helps them. Because when you are in a political cult, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. So you would rather die drinking poison water then accept it because a Democrat did it. Come on, man! As he would say, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it makes no I mean, sense. It, but you, you make you make it's a valid madness. point, and I, I definitely want to dwell into that um, as far as the state of the Republican Party. Um, and it's interesting as far as a poison that people are drinking 
um, an accepting of the lie of the current state of the Republican Party. I don't know if you know this, but it was on the news how DirecTV, a big satellite uh, provider for news and, and other entertainment, they're dropping OAN. I think it's a, um, I forgot what it stands for, but it's hard, hard right, conservative right, yeah, misinformation. It, it, <laughs> one it, America, one that's America, it. One American network. Yeah, and, they're dropping it because the misinformation that it, they provide. So let me tell you a funny story. When it, when I first saw the network, it was I had direct. I had a Direct TV package. This is years and years ago, and that's where they started. They started on Direct TV because I think AT and T owned Direct TV, whatever it was. And when I, I was casually browsing through the channels. And I got there and I stopped and I thought it was a parody. I thought this was like a joke. Because like a Saturday I, Night Live. Yeah, I, I, I didn't believe that, that, I mean, I'm used to Fox. And Fox, you know, they dress it up a little bit. These guys weren't, they were just, the things that they were reporting and the way that they were reporting and what they were saying was like, but this is obviously not true. This is a joke. And I did some research and I was like, oh, this is a quote unquote legitimate news organization. But speaking of the news, Michael, we were laughing, right? And, and, and I'm going to make you laugh. What do you think would have happened if the country found out that Lester Holt was texting President Obama about policy. What do you think would happen? Oh, they would criticize the President <laughs> Obama. They would laugh at, I mean, Lester Holt's credibility will be null because he's not a true journalist. You're talking about like a Sean Hannity who's been texting okay. and communicating with <laughs> the former president. Fox News hosts had the president's cell phone. He would often call during cabinet meetings and have one of them on the phone in meetings. Let me not say cabinet meetings before I'm accused of spreading misinformation. But in meetings, he would call Sean Hannity. This is what I'm talking about. Like, And so when Sean Hannity goes to deliver a message to his audience, his audience takes that message as it's a message from Trump or it's a message from the Republican uh, orthodoxy, which is defined by Trump now. And now you have Republicans who are, they're trying to out-Trump Trump. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm, I definitely want to jump on that and continue that part of the conversation because I think we could uh, definitely go on with that and the absurdity that takes place. Before we close out, let me... Get your opinion as we close out on the Biden-Harris one-year anniversary. What do you think of Kamala Harris? She's getting um, she's getting um, arrows being thrown at her. Now, is it fair to say, that, is she strong? Is she weak? Does she look like she's going to be um, stepping into the chair if called upon? <laughs> Michael, you set me up, aren't you? Okay, I'm going to answer your question as best as I can. Um. Because I'm laughing because there are things uh, that I would like to say that I'm not going to say because they won't advance the conversation. 
and 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 just to give you a hint of it, it's about political instinct. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and so I could talk a lot about uh, her political instinct. Okay, um, maybe I will. But but the first thing that I want to say is Republicans are very strategic. If there is a person who they see as a threat, they triangulate and they make sure that they already start sowing seeds of doubt about that person. Good point. Good point. If you are a person who's in politics and and you want to someday be president, and I think it's fair to say that Kamala Harris would like to be president one day, that is not an attack on her character or her personality or her as a human being. There are a lot of people who would like to be president one day. Since she is the presumptive nominee if Biden doesn't run because she's the vice president, she's going to get a lot of attention. Some of the attention is deserved. Some of it is sexist. It's misogynistic. It's racist. Putting uh, those. Go ahead, Michael. No, no, you you made a point, and I and one person that comes to mind, and yes, she because she's the first, being a woman, she's the um, Jamaican Asian uh, woman to be in that chair in this high profile position. I think of Dan Quayle. He was criticized too back in the nineties, uh, as far as being. I remember the parodies that they did on him during Saturday Night Live skits. Um, because they thought he would succeed Bush if he was to run two, ter- you know, win two terms and so forth. But nevertheless, um, Kamala Harris is in a tough position because she is the first. And um, being a woman in Washington in that powerful arena, um, you know, I, I'm, I won't say they're setting up her to fail. I think she's an open target, and everything is being thrown at her. And, you know, one of the biggest comments you hear from right-wing talking points or shows is that she didn't go to the border. She didn't go to the border. She didn't go to the border. <laughs> it's like, like, a, like a parrot. Um, and to address well, well, the, that issue there. Well, well I, th- I think this is where I would disagree with you. Um, I, I, I don't, when I talk about the, the misogyny, uh, I'm talking about in terms of how it's covered. How, how they frame the criticism of her. Having said that, the most powerful woman in Washington right now is Nancy Pelosi. And she somehow, even though for years and years, and, and I don't agree with Pelosi on everything. I, I, I have my issues with Nancy Pelosi, but what I will say about Nancy Pelosi is Nancy Pelosi has political instincts. She has been criticized. She has been lied on. She has been subject to all kinds of awful things. And I think Kamala should talk to Nancy. <laughs> and, and, and maybe Nancy can give her some some tips about how to deal with that. Because, you know, good, because good you're point. always going to be attacked. She's mm-hmm. going to attack her until... They're going to attack her for the foreseeable future. As, as long as they perceive her to be a threat, they want her weak before she has an opportunity to run. So 
I'm not saying she, she doesn't make mistakes. I'm not saying that people can't have legit criticisms of her. What I am saying, however, is that she needs to be better able to understand that this is not going to stop. If anything, it's going to get worse. She, she should talk to Hillary. You are correct. She should talk to Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, because and other other women uh, leaders um, who had to fight through an all dominated male or for some part, all white male dominated arena to get where they are. Um, Sam, as always, thank you for joining me on a raw and uncut episode. We will definitely invite you to come back as we want to talk about other particular topics dealing with um, our government. We'll talk to you soon. Before I share my closing thoughts, let me say thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I ask that you subscribe to this podcast, which can be found on Spotify, Apple, Google, Anchor, or wherever you choose to listen to this episode. Feel free to comment as I welcome all feedback. You may also sign up for future episodes and leave your comments on my website, www.cuckooforpolitics.com. Follow me on Facebook and on Instagram under the brand name Cuckoo for Politics. Congressional gridlock will continue to be the norm in the foreseeable U.S. political future. And if so, no legislative movement will take place. And again, we, the American people, will bear the true costs as a result of lack of cooperation among our legislators. So we could say, again, the country's progress in advancing America's interests, such as the lowering the cost of prescription drugs, addressing immigration reform, raising the minimum wage, that is still $7.25 since 2009, addressing climate change, funding for numerous federal programs and the likes, will be on an indefinite hold. Reaching consensus, bipartisanship, seems unattainable in an era of hyperpolarization in D.C. President Obama was able to obtain one signature piece of legislation in his two terms in office, the Affordable Health Care, also known as Obamacare. Trump, on the other hand, was able to get his tax cut for the wealthy in his brief one term in office. Despite having some other attainable accomplishments to executive orders and such, both former presidents did lose respectfully their party's control of Congress during the midterm elections. Basically, this kind of hampered or halted some of their other campaign priorities. The inability for the federal government to actually govern and run in a constant dysfunctional state begs to question what can be done and do other democracies have similar paralysis when it comes to governing. Professor Jane Mansbridge from Harvard Kennedy School and a former president of the American Political Science Association answers that question in two ways. She basically says not so many democracies come close to the U.S. government's dysfunction. She elaborates there are two contributing factors that make it challenging for the U.S. to progress in some ways like in other countries. First, due to the separation of powers embedded in the Constitution, Congress, elected by the people, is in charge to draft laws. The president, also elected by the people, signs the law. The judicial branch, appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, determines if a law is unconstitutional. Putting that concept aside 
In a parliamentary format, like in the UK, the prime minister is elected by the body of its peers. It would be like if the U.S. president was elected by members of Congress versus us, the American citizen. Nevertheless, a prime minister has an advantage in such that by being elected by their peers, they have a stable majority to pass laws. In the event the prime minister does not have a stable majority, legislative of various political groups within parliament form alliances with the understanding of certain laws and or policies will be reached. Now, she also has to say there is one big notable difference between the U.S. and other democracies. It's the lack of campaign finance reform. In essence, there's too much money from outside special interests that influences laws in America. Other countries have strict campaign finance laws that govern the amount of money given to any campaign. In fact, there are strict guidance on when people are bombarded by campaign ads. In the U.S., it is nonstop until Election Day. Former President Obama once confirmed this notion by stating, if a lawmaker does not toe the line suggested by the outside groups, those same groups will throw their unlimited financial support against a challenger. Hence, elected officials fear not only losing their elected position, but possibly hindering any other political aspirations they may have. The Supreme Court did an injustice when they overturned Citizens United in 2010, when Congress years ago passed laws restricting corporate and special interest groups in campaign donations. The court overturned a decade of campaign finance restrictions and opened the floodgates for corporations and other outside groups to spend unfettered amounts of money on political campaigns. An average citizen's donation of a single dollar is no match to a corporation that could provide $1 million in the campaign contributions. Notably, Bernie Sanders came close to beating those odds, but eventually big money prevailed during his two presidential campaigns. Comments made about the Vice President Kamala Harris that was made in this episode, I'll explore further regarding the double standard facing women in leadership in a future podcast episode. However, it should be noted that it comes to no surprise of the racial and misogynistic comments made about her. It is the same broken record we hear from before, made by those who basically despise change. Any public figure who is the first in their respective category, unfortunately, will succumb to character assassination. It is one thing to criticize the vice president on a policy decision, but it's one thing to criticize her for who she is, a black woman of Asian and Jamaican descent. Join me in the next podcast discussion where my guests and I will continue our series of raw and uncut state of our union as we try to figure out what led to the transformation of the Republican Party to become more of like a cult-like political party. This is Michael, host of the political podcast, Cook of Politics. Thank you for listening. Until the next podcast, stay blessed.